Hello there. Going through a divorce? Considering one? Sorry to hear that. But here you are. Welcome to Splitsville. You'll find Splitsville to be a pretty unique place. A new world, really, with its own rules, its own expectations, and in many ways, its own language. But don't worry. You have a knowledgeable guide along the way. A family law attorney with three decades of experience under her belt. And now, here she is. Your host and guide, Lee Sellers. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Welcome to Splitsville. I'm your host and guide, Lee Sellers, founder of Touchstone Family Law. And in this episode, I'll be answering another question that many newcomers to Splitsville have. How can I get out of an abusive relationship? So let's dive in. So today's topic is a lot darker than most of the um, topics that I've discussed in previous episodes of this podcast. The podcast is a catchy tune and this idea of going into an alternate universe of divorce and separation and family conflict where you don't really know what to do and, and you're lost and you need some some help. But there are two areas that are just darker than all of the rest that we deal with in family conflict and, and certainly domestic violence is one of those. And so today we are so fortunate to have Jamie Sellers no relation, here from Safe Alliance, which is a fantastic nonprofit in the uh, greater Charlotte area that helps, among other things, but they help people who have been subject to domestic abuse and, and intimate partner violence restart and escape, and they help give them the resource. So, Jamie, we are so pleased you're here. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, and you have such great information. Why don't you start out by telling us about Safe Alliance? Tell people more about what Safe Alliance is and what they do and what your role is there. So Safe Alliance is the Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault Agency for Mecklenburg County. And we have different programs. One is the shelter, so the um, Domestic Violence Shelter, um, and where we serve men and women. It is an 80-bed shelter, and it is for imminent danger. We have our victim assistance office who assists with the legal side of everything. So in civil and criminal court, we provide court accompaniment. We assist with completing the 50B domestic violence protection orders. And we also have our legal representation program that is part of victim assistance that represents clients for their DVPO one-year hearing. And in that hearing, they have support. We have two staff attorneys, and then we work with about 90 pro bono attorneys. So anybody who comes into our office, a victim assistance who's requesting legal representation for their domestic violence protection order, we do a referral. And so even if they can't get a representation, they um, do get legal advice. So they're getting something to take with them. We also provide safety planning. We take photos of injuries for documentation, um, and we support them along through the process. So there is an advocate in both civil and criminal domestic violence courtrooms to support them through that process. We have our Sexual Trauma Resource Center, referred to as STRC, where they have counselors on site, and they provide or advocacy for um, sexual assault victims and survivors and secondary survivors as well. And then we have our newly launched Greater Charlotte Hope Line, so our hotline that just recently launched. 
And on that hotline, we have experts trained to address domestic violence, sexual assault, and parenting. And so we are very excited about that program. And so that is we work together to really just try to not only bring awareness, but support the victims of domestic violence and sexual assault in Mecklenburg. And you guys do such huge work in the community. Now, tell everyone how long Safe Alliance has, has been in existence in Mecklenburg County. Since 1909. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we have been around for a while, and we've really kind of evolved throughout, you know, what the community needs and where we kind of fit into all of that. But, you know, we continue to evolve and grow and support in any way we can. So let's talk a little bit about the non-court support that you Mm -hmm. have, because I see the court process is one of the things that people often turn to in this situation. It's not necessarily the first thing. So I think the shelter that you talked about is a critical need when it's, it's like you said, it's an absolute emergency. So let's talk a little bit more about who that shelter services. So that shelter services imminent danger victims. And so we're talking about high lethality cases where people are trying to leave the situation and leave the relationship and they have nowhere else to go. So if they have no family or no friends or it's just not safe, if the abuser knows the locations that they would flee to, those are really the core victims and survivors that that shelter is there to serve and keep safe. We also take in children, majority of the residents at the shelter are unfortunately children children that are coming in. And then, you know, so we work together. It is, unfortunately, it's, although it's an 80 bed shelter and it can sleep about 110 people, we really maintain full capacity 365 days a year. That's just stunning. It is. And how long can someone stay there? So it's an imminent danger situation. So how long is someone expected to be in the shelter before they might be able to move on to another safe place? So in the past, we went from it being a very quick turnaround. I think it was between, I think it was about 90 days stay. And then we tried because obviously housing is such an issue in Charlotte. We tried making it more of a transitional housing, Mm -hmm. but because of the need for shelter and the volume of people leaving abusive relationships, we had to go back to being that imminent danger shelter. And so we are back to it being a 90-day stay, but it is case by case. So not any one person has the same situation going on. So they have counselors and caseworkers and case managers that really support them throughout the process from the time they walk in that door to the time that they leave to help support them. So there are some that stay past that 90-day mark. Well, now that you have the hotline, would most of the people who need that resource find their way to the shelter by calling the hotline, or is there another referral source? So that would be the way that they would find us. So the shelter had their own hotline, and then victim assistance had their own hotline as well. But when we launched and STRC did too. Um, but when we launched the hotline, all of those numbers rolled into that one line. So if they call that Greater Hope line, um, yes, they will be connected to an advocate and then they will go through, you know, just sharing their story and then be tra- a soft transfer to the shelter. Now, in the situations where it's not imminent 
danger, which doesn't mean that there isn't danger, but right. it's not like literally fleeing an active mm-hmm. volatile situation. How do you all process or intake or, or handle those calls or the people that, that come? So again, I'm going to speak to what I know. My role is separate from the shelter, but when they call in, if it is not imminent danger, they still work with them to help connect them to a shelter and then work through their options. So their safety planning, in-depth safety planning to talk through what we can do. We figure out if there is another location or a safe place for them to stay. Maybe there is a family member that the abuser might not know where they live. So trying to help navigate that situation to get them somewhere that's safe. And we have pretty good working relationships with surrounding shelters as well that might not always be at full capacity that we can reach out to and try to get them to a safe place. Now, is there any sort of vetting process or do you all help anyone who calls and or stops by and, and finds their way to Safe Alliance or are there certain segments of the population that you help and certain segments that you have to refer out? Well, we help everybody. So it just depends on what level we're talking. So if you come in and, you know, we determine that maybe it's not domestic violence or sexual assault, we will still figure out and talk to you and figure out what you need, but connect you to the appropriate community partners to still assist with whatever it is you're looking for. So, yes, I would say that we're able to help anybody that reaches out in some capacity. And that's regardless of their income status or language or Correct. their yes. residential status? Yes. Yeah, so if they are trying to get help or get away from an abusive, relation, abusive relationship, Safe Alliance is, is going to find some way to assist them right, to the best of their abilities. Yes. Now, you had talked about with your role, mm-hmm. both you and I work in the same neighborhood where we're working to help people navigate the legal field right. that they have when they want to seek a legal order of protection. So I know you were throwing out some of the, the acronyms we use all the time, DVPO and right. uh, Chapter 50B. But for those that aren't really aware of it, there is a statute, mm-hmm. an entire chapter that we refer to as 50B, right? which is the statutes that all deal with the protections that the state of North Carolina has passed for people who are victimized by domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the great things is, is that part of that was passing those forms so that there's pre-printed forms so that you don't have to have an attorney file the paperwork. You don't have Mm -hmm. to have an attorney fill out the paperwork. So the good news is, is that it is accessible to anyone who can get to a courthouse and get to a clerk at window and say, I need to get a protective order in civil court. So it's, it's a fantastic step that we didn't have the whole time I've been practicing law. So I think it's really great. But it's still incredibly intimidating to just look at that paperwork. It's a lot of paperwork. It is. So sort of talk about how Safe Alliance helps people who maybe haven't gone to see an attorney yet feel more comfortable in filling out that paperwork and not to get so overwhelmed that they just leave and don't seek the protection. Right. Well, as you mentioned, it's very overwhelming. There's over 18 pages in that 50B packet. And so Safe Alliance is able to assist if they come into the victim assistance office, they're spoken to, an advocate goes out and speaks to them when they come in. And we make sure that they meet that statute if they're there to file a 50B. We don't just assist with 50Bs, but if that is what they're there for, 
we talk to them about that. And then the advocate is able to meet with them and actually hear their story, ask those questions, and fill out that 50B paperwork. So filling out that complaint piece and going through and just making sure that everything is in there correctly. We do have a new exciting process, which is why we're able to now draft the complaints the way that we do. And it is that an attorney reviews every single complaint that comes through our office. And so since January 25th, we're very excited about it. Anybody who is seeking a 50B domestic violence protection order that comes to the victim assistance meets with an advocate, they assist complete the paperwork, they get it all typed up and organized, then an attorney sits there and reviews it and makes sure it's all accurate to the notes that the advocate took and that everything is in place, all boxes are checked because it is very overwhelming with all the boxes that are there and do I check it, do I not? So the advocate and the attorney are able to work together to make sure that all of that is taken care of. And then once they review it, then we put, we call it that 50B packet, we put it together and then we give you some additional information and then we connect you to the civil clerk's office to file that paperwork. Mm-hmm. And then they would go file that paperwork on their own. Yes, mm-hmm. unless they requested an advocate to walk with them or if there's a need, if we're in short time, you Currently, you have to file by 1 p.m. Mm-hmm. to go to court at 1.30 that same day um, for your emergency ex parte hearing. And so if we're concerned that they're not going to get over there in time, we will walk over there with them, or if they request it, we will as well. Mm-hmm. And the clerks are versed in this paperwork, so right. it's part of their job that they have to know how to handle it. And so that is one of the things that they spend really more time than we would believe right. um, processing it because unfortunately it is a pretty overwhelming number of people. Mm-hmm. But um, people should not be scared to go to the clerk's office and handle it because they're not literally going to just walk into a vacuum. These people know what to do when they see people with that packet. Right. And they will help. Now, the courthouse in every county is an overwhelming experience. Um, most people don't go to court that often, if you get a speeding ticket maybe. But the Mecklenburg County Courthouse is tremendously overwhelming. Right. It's, it's large. It's very hard to find your way around. The courtrooms are big. And the domestic violence courtroom has a lot of bailiffs in it, you know, mm-hmm. to try to keep everybody safe and, you know, a lot of big doors. Right. So one of the things that I always notice when I'm there and that I've always appreciated is the support that Safe Alliance gives to people who physically don't have anyone right? and really would be sitting there by themselves, frightened. And tell everybody a little bit about what role you, you all can play in those situations. So 4110 is the civil domestic violence courtroom in Mecklenburg, and then 4130 is the criminal domestic violence courtroom. So we have an advocate or a volunteer intern in each of those courtrooms. They both run Monday through Friday at 9 a.m. and 1.30 p.m., and we always have somebody in there. And they sit on the front row. We all kind of do it a little bit differently, but they make their presence known. Some judges introduce us. But our job in there is to not only speak to our clients and make sure that they are comfortable, but anybody in there who is a plaintiff and the victim filing the case, we will reach out to and speak to them. The judges and victim assistants, we all have a very good working relationship to where if it is 
if the judge that's on the bench feels that they need to be spoken to by victim assistance, they say victim assistance is up here, you know, please step out and speak with them. So our job in there is to connect with people, make sure that they're comfortable as comfortable as they can be Mm -hmm. and make sure that we can answer any questions kind of about how the process goes or anything like that to provide that additional support. Now, this might be a good time for you to sort of back up and go to what really the heart of the matter is. We started talking about areas that I think people are pretty familiar with, which is if there is violence. So if someone is in physical danger of physical harm and um, we have a violent, volatile situation, that is easily identified as domestic violence, domestic abuse. And really when we've been talking about going to a shelter, necessarily having to get emergency orders, emergency assistance. Um, And as you mentioned, there's also criminal statutes that Mm -hmm. intersect and cover some of the behaviors that we see in domestic violence. But anyone who has become well-versed in domestic abuse knows that it's so much more than physical violence and sexual assaults. So why don't we take a moment and you explain to people who maybe think their situation isn't domestic abuse because their partner has not hit them and has not hurt them. Let's talk more about what it is. Right. So I think we should just start by saying that domestic violence is a pattern of behaviors to exert power and control over their partner. And that can be in many different forms. It is emotionally psychologically, the manipulation that goes into it. All relationships are different. And I think the big takeaway from it is that when you go into a relationship, it's obviously doesn't start out abusive because none of us would get into that situation. So it is a pattern of behaviors that happens over time. And they can be very small things. It's quick involvement, jealousy, isolation. So there's a lot of A big common thing that we see is that they're isolated from their friends and their family and that they have nobody to reach out to when the situation does become physical, if it does. Sometimes it doesn't even reach that point. But the goal is to get them away and isolated so that they are their only point of contact and their person that they have to go to and that they have to just connect with for anything. And so I think that that's the big piece to it. It's about the power and the control over that person. And it's been my experience that the longer the relationship has existed and the more evolved the abuse has become over time, the more difficult it is for those victims. And I I wish there was another word for it, but right. the people who have been subjected to this, it's more difficult for them to break away mm-hmm. and often more difficult for them to even recognize what they're still going through. Right. Do you find that? Well, yes. I think that there's many factors that goes into it. I mean, children are a big part of it. If you've been in a relationship and you have children together, I mean, that really changes the whole level of everything and the dynamic because you're doing a lot of you know, you're staying with them because it's better for the children. But is it better for the children? Mm-hmm. You know, you have to really, I mean, you're playing all of these what if games and you're asking yourself these questions. But the more invested you are, I mean, you have love for that person. Why doesn't she leave? That's the big thing. Mm-hmm. And it's, there's so many reasons. You know, you might be financially dependent on them. You might have children and, you know, they need 
that figure there to maintain going to school and just to keep their normal lifestyle. So there's the fear, too. I mean, leaving a relationship is the most dangerous time because you are starting to take the power back and they feel threatened by that. So you really have to that's why we stress safety planning so much because it you really have to have a plan in place. There is you have low self-esteem. A lot of times this psychological abuse that's happening is that constant um, repetitive downplaying you, telling you how awful you are, you're a horrible mother, um, you're a horrible person. And when you hear something like that every day, you start to believe it. I mean, everybody would. I mean, that becomes your normal and you buy into that and you think that you don't deserve better. And, you know, all of those pieces and many other reasons why somebody won't, doesn't think that they can leave. And, you know, the longer that you're involved, the harder it is to break that cycle because it becomes all you know. And then that isolation piece is huge because you don't have anybody else to reach out to because maybe you've been in this relationship for 20 years. So it's just, it's a lot of factors that play in and it's all, it's different for everybody. So one of the things you were talking about was the isolation. And one of the things that I see is the economic isolation becomes really critical in these situations, often, in not always, but in domestic abuse situations, the person who is abusing them has taken away all access to money, mm-hmm. funds, really any ability to go anywhere without them, or they're tracked so carefully. Right. I remember one case I had in particular that was just so sad that there was one car, they both had to work for the family business. She had to work for the family business when he was home taking care of the kids. So he had the children when she was at work. And they, anytime she went anywhere, he stayed on the phone with her the entire time. So if she was at the grocery store, she was on the phone with him the whole time. And if he heard someone speaking to her, you know, it became an instant fight. But it was just literally there was no escape Right. Of this person. She, everything about her was tied to him. Her, her, she was working. So right. that was unusual in the sense that she was right. <laughs> outside of the workforce, but for the family business. And anytime she was there, he had the children. So I just remember how trapped she felt, right. you know, and just hopeless. And it was really one of the, the sadder experiences. And he had never hit her. Ever. Right. And I think if she said that one time, she said it a hundred times. Like she kept apologizing for feeling like she needed to get out of this relationship right. by saying, but he's never hit me. And it's just so difficult to work through what somebody has been subjected to for 20 years. Right. And I think the takeaway from it, too, is, you know, although society is growing more acceptive of talking about domestic violence, we do really focus on the physical violence aspect. Mm -hmm. And really, I think the big thing is that bruises heal. Mm -hmm. Psychological abuse goes so much deeper and can be so much worse. And I think that, you know, speaking to that, I, I have a client that I worked with in the past that always stands out to me because each client's so, their story's so unique and so different. But it was similar to that. And he would, there was one car She wasn't allowed to work. She could only go and get groceries on a certain day, and he would only give her $50, and they had four children. 
So <laughs> four children, mm-hmm. him and her, $50 a week. But he would track the mileage. He knew how far, and so he would see where it was. And if she went, it was seven miles to the closest grocery store. And if it wasn't 14 miles, almost to the dot on there, it wasn't pleasant when she got home. And I remember for the first time, that was one of the first ones that just really hit me pretty hard because it's like, are you kidding? Like, Mm -hmm. it's insane to the level that, you know, abusers go to really maintain that power and really make you feel hopeless. And I mean, that's what it is, is it's, and it is so sad to see and when you're just constantly, I mean, it's very common that they're apologizing and very sympathetic, like you said, and it's a constant as an advocate, you're there to empower them and explain that there's nothing to be sorry about. You didn't do this. You didn't ask for any of this. And I think that that is just, that's really what our goal is, is to empower them to get their voice back and to take a stand, but to do it in a safe way. Well, what if you can think of any right now, what are some warning signs that you would recommend people take note of if they're in a relationship so that they perhaps can sort of see it and get out before so much damage has been done that it gets that difficult? I think it's a little bit of what I mentioned before, the quick involvement. They seem perfect at the beginning. It's almost Anytime one of my girlfriends is talking about like a new relationship or anything and they're talking about how perfect he is or anything, it's like, uh oh, something's not perfect. The quick involvement is huge. You met them last week. They're constantly calling you. They don't respect that you have a job. You can't respond to quick text messages. Um, There's a lot of those little cues to pick up on. The jealousy. That's a huge thing. It's not cute. It's not that they care about you. It's control. And it's the way that it starts. But it, especially in like teen dating violence, in those young relationships, I mean, you think, I mean, I just think back to, you know, those days and not knowing any better. But, you know, I remember friends being like, oh, he's just jealous. You know, it's cute and all of that stuff. But that's a huge red flag to look for is that very quick involvement the need to always know where you are, why you're not answering. And if they don't respect when you say, I'm at work, I'll get off at five and I'll call you then, or I'll text you back then. If you look at your phone and you see that there's five text messages and you met them last week and it's Wednesday, Mm -hmm. you know, so really picking up on those small cues, but yet not small cues. Yeah, I, I, was curious what your take on it was going to be. And especially let's think about any listener here that is maybe concerned that they have a friend in one of these relationships or perhaps a parent that is concerned that they have a child that's in it. The way that so much of this is couched early on is as love, right? Like I just worry about you. I mean, you know, you were gone too long. I was just worried about you or I just love you so much. Or, you know, I've never felt this way about anybody before. I just feel like I need to be with you all the time. So it's not couched in the terms we're talking about it, like from the outside where we're, when we talk about it, when we're, you know, trying to help people out of it, we're already, we've already identified it as a pretty insidious conduct. And we speak about it that way. But now the abuser isn't starting out being like, you can't have any friends, but me, 
Right. No, yeah. It's a very, it's a slow process. It is. It's like, I'm the best friend you'll ever have. And right. they really start running your friends down mm-hmm. and your family. They don't really love you. I mean, gosh. No. I mean, that's, that is the big thing to stress too is, I mean, it's manipulation at its finest and that's what it is, is, you know, I care about you. It's just because I love you. I mean, and we're talking about like the love word too, getting thrown out 10 days after you've met somebody mm-hmm. and it's like, what's happening? But I think the big piece is the isolation of the downplaying of, you know, your family doesn't care. A lot of it starts with friends though. Cause I mean, mm-hmm. If you, especially if you have a good relationship with your family and he or she knows that, then it's really, well, I don't like your friend so and so. He or she really bothers me. Like she talks bad about you or he talks bad about you. Really, and it's all made up. And Mm -hmm. it's just that manipulation where they're just pulling you in because really, as the abuser, I'm the only one that cares about you. Mm -hmm. And, Again, that you'll never, there'll never be anybody else that'll love right. you. You're not worthy of it. I'm the only one. Exactly. It's so sad. A little bit more about, we've talked about 50B, and we're not going to get into all of the, the legal issues in this episode because we want to talk about the services. I'm curious, does Safe Alliance also work with what we call the 50C the no contact orders where, you know, and for anybody who's listening that doesn't know, you assume that there's the particular help for one statute is that the people have been in a dating relationship or a marriage or, you know, have a child together. But the 50C could be a roommate or another family member where there's a protection needed for a variety of reasons. Does Safe Alliance help with that? Yes. So we assist with the 50C, non-consensual sexual misconduct for sexual assault and for stalking and harassment. Obviously, as you know, those are a little bit more challenging to prove. So we really, I guess we're a little bit more careful about how we assist, but we do, we provide assistance for 50Cs as well. Let's talk about this in both contexts, because I personally, as an attorney, am seeing a rise. So there's one of the types of domestic violence in the statute that's defined is the basically stalking. Mm -hmm. So talking about people being placed in fear of just continued harassment that rises to the level of stalking. And I'm finding more of that with the smartphones mm-hmm. than I used to see when the statute first came yeah. out. So are you seeing that as well? Yes. I mean, it is. We just we have an advocate that is very tech savvy and she has started making and researching all of um, these little safe sheets for all the different apps and everything. But the it has I mean, it's insane. And we as advocates, we had this conversation, you know, this week about if we had phones the way that we did, I mean, the level that they do things, it's, you know, you have an app where you can change your number. So you're calling them, but then you try to get a 50C and it's like, well, it's not the same number. So it's like, we've got to pick up the phone and confirm that it's them and then hang up. But it's, does that put you in more danger? But a hundred percent with the technology Mm -hmm. and everything, it is, there is a huge increase. I almost feel that, you know, I've told people just go back to the flip phone, like go find the phone that they're selling now for the elderly, you know, which Mm -hmm. are the ones with the big button that have like no internet connection when you're in these situations, because it's, it really is frightening how many evasive and invasive um, things are out there that make it easy for them to, you know, continue to either track people, monitor them, 
or just interfere with our life. Right. I mean, we have people come into our office and they're like, I just don't know how he or she knows where I am. Like they know where I am all the time. And I just, the first question is, is your location on your phone? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, you've never really had to think about all of that, but you do now. And mm-hmm. it's, I mean, it's just making it that much easier for them to track you and keep up with you, everything that you do. Now, what tips would you give someone if they are trying to get out of a relationship? I mean, obviously calling your hotline would be helpful. But if they're not feeling that that's a safe choice yet, what are some things that they can start doing to protect themselves or start planning on how they might look for that opportunity when it would be safe for them to call or or get someone to, to help them? Right. Well, again, the planning is always different in each situation. I think some general takeaways would be to start putting aside, you know, important documents that you have, keeping copies of those documents, packing a little go bag to where, like, if you don't know whenever you can go, you go. Really trying to pick up kind of on the abuser's schedule and pattern and when you think it would be the safest time to leave and when you have that window of opportunity. We always say when you before you're leaving, stay away from rooms with anything that can be used, like a kitchen. You don't want to go into a kitchen. There's knives. There's all of these things. So staying away from those rooms where there's not an escape. So if there's not a window or a door, you know, and things are escalating and getting heated, stay away from those areas. But really just trying to plan what that next step is. And it's just so hard to tell you exactly what that would look like without sitting here and having someone tell me mm-hmm. what their situation is and what's going on because it's so unique to each and every one. And you can't generalize it because that puts you in more danger. Correct. Now, as you've talked about the uniqueness of it, we also know that it's it's fairly widespread. So do you have any idea sort of what we're dealing with in terms of numbers of this community of people who are abused by these people that are in the relationships with? So one in four women and one in seven men aged 18 and older in the United States have been a victim of severe physical intimate partner violence. And that's stunning. One in four and one in seven. Mm -hmm. That makes it impossible for you to, like in your friend set, not know somebody. Right. Who's experienced it. Right. And I've read somewhere, and maybe you can confirm it, that one of the highest, a place that we're seeing a really huge increase is in the teen population. Right. I mean, yeah, I don't know exact stats, but it is mind-boggling the amount of teen dating violence that is happening and that is showing up. And it goes back to one of those things of, I don't know that it's becoming more frequent I just don't think it was talked about as much and you know Charlotte has love speaks out now Mm -hmm. and it's a great program and community support services has a teen dating violence program that's really phenomenal and they get out in the community and they go to the schools but it's it's becoming very scary and so what I would say to that is anybody who has a teen talk to them about what a healthy relationship looks like and don't assume that just because they think everything is going right or it's all just sweet and innocent. I mean, start having that conversation early because they know somebody or they might possibly be in that abusive relationship. 
So the dating that, that we were sort of talking about or the, the intimate partner violence, one thing I think needs to be made clear when we were talking about helping everyone is this is heterosexual, same sex, right? Everyone can be subject to these types of relationships. Right. And Safe Alliance helps everyone without any discrimination. Yes. And accepts everyone. I think the national conversation often seems to be men versus women. Right. Men are the abusers. Women are the the victims. But, you know, that may be statistically relevant somehow. That might actually be true. But in reality, we see this across any type of intimate right. relationship. Right. And I think it's important for everybody to know that they're going to be treated well when they come. Right. And they're going to get the same help um, regardless of their, yep. their particular situation. Safe Alliance is a safe space for everybody to come in and seek assistance that is experiencing domestic violence or sexual assault. I was going to give you a moment to talk a little bit about, I was just curious, and it might not even be connected to the domestic violence, but you were talking about the sort of the parenting assistance that you give. Let's talk about that because we've been talking about teens and right. violence. So. Well, again, I, that is not really my area, but our staff that is answering the hotlines, is they are trained in some different child interaction models. And the whole agency is in the process of being trained in the care model, which is the child adult. Why can't I remember it? And I just, I just did this training too. Really, it's the child adult relationship enhancement model. And so we're really making an effort as an agency to make sure that our staff is well versed and trained in dealing with that. Parenting support, though, it's really just if you are a new mom or, you know, you have four kids or whatever it is and you're feeling overwhelmed and just like you can't do it anymore you just call our hope line and they will be able to talk to you and support you and provide you with much better information than I can (laughs) so they will be there um, to support you through that process and you know if you're a mom you know that sometimes you just need somebody to talk to to take a step away and Mm -hmm. breathe and have somebody that hears you and understands what you're experiencing so, and, and I asked this question with no judgment, but I think that the statistics bear out or the studies have bared out that domestic violence is often generational. It is learned behavior. And, right. that, you know, if you've had a child that's grown up in an abusive household, that they are more likely to become an abusive right. partner. Right. And I think that that's a very important point to bring up is that abuse and that is a learned behavior. And so... Part of another reason why they don't just leave is because they might have grown up in that environment where they don't know that it's wrong and they don't know that they deserve better because that has been their entire life. And so that is a very important piece to remember that it's a learned behavior and it doesn't mean that you have to act on it because it's the way that you were raised and what you've seen, um, but you do have to make that conscience effort to make a decision to not be abusive. And then, again, this is without judgment because I do understand how difficult this is, but you mentioned earlier that one of the reasons sometimes that a a person who is 
victimized will stay is that they think it's best to stay in the marriage for the children. Right. And you sort of said, or is it? Let's talk about that for a moment. Because, right. I mean, I know I have personal strong opinions about <laughs> that. But, um, again, I say that without judgment because right. I do know it's difficult. But um, what sort of support is out there, you know, when you have someone and they're, they're staying in it? You know, how is it that the children of these relationships get support? Does Safe Alliance have any way of trying to help the trauma of the children that maybe weren't subject to it, but have been witnessing it? Right. So Safe Alliance, through the Sexual Trauma Resource Center, they do counseling and play therapy in that department. Victim assistants recently were very lucky that we were able to hire a family advocate to focus on that. Um, in past years, we unfortunately did not have the capacity to have somebody watch the children full time while they were in with an av- with mom or dad meeting with an advocate. So Safe Alliance Victim Assistance is currently working on developing a child-specific program. And we are focusing on, you know, the safety planning for appropriate ages, the um, age-appropriate activities, really working with them to help them process what they have experienced and witnessed as a child that is in an abusive household. Also, our shelter has support groups. They have, they partner with community support services for counseling as well. And community support services has a HEROES program for children that have witnessed domestic violence. And so there are those programs because honestly it is, they start picking it up at such a young age and you wouldn't even recognize it, but you know, it breaks your heart because you have somebody come in that has a two year old and they're like, Oh, he or she's fine. You know, let just let them play over there. But the last thing you want them to do is to hear mom or dad talking about the events that have happened because they're processing it. And whether we like it or not, I mean, they know what's going on and they are very intuitive to picking up on mom and dad or dad's reactions. And unfortunately, they know a lot more than we wish they did. Mm-hmm. And that's so true that people think that they're staying. And, and one of the things that I contend with or, or sort of have to work with when I'm trying to assist a victim myself, because I am their advocate, so I'm not imposing my will on them. It's their life. It's their situation. I'm there to help them. But I hear so many times, but they're a good dad. Right. And let's again go back to the traditional heterosexual mom-dad model. Right. But they're a good dad. And it's so stunning to think about the fact that they do believe that. They believe that they're a good, good dad. And they're minimizing the impact that the way that mom was treated was not particularly a good example of parenting. Right. But that really is a constant theme often with these younger children. I mean, and the fact, too, is that unfortunately in these situations, like the situation that you speak of, is like the dad is teaching, especially if they have sons, Mm -hmm. they're teaching them this behavior. And they're – and it's so – sad and scary to really think about but they are bringing them in on the abuse from ages like four and up I mean Mm -hmm. you see videos or you hear stories but I mean this is real life and it happens where you have dad screaming and pointing in mom's face and the four-year-old standing right beside of him doing the exact same thing they start hitting mom and it always 
breaks your heart even more when a mom comes in, they have a young son, and you just see him kicking and punching her because you know he's just reenacting what he sees dad doing to her. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've observed this, and, and this would be something I would be questioning because it's something I had observed, is that I've often, and again, this is not universal because every situation is unique, but I've often seen the one thing when you're talking about the alienating and the isolation is that I've often seen the abusers at some point latch in and then start alienating the child right. from the from the mother mm-hmm. as well or from the other parent. Right. That whoever the abusive parent is, the next thing they go to is if there is a strong bond. Right. You know, that isn't satisfactory either. And when they're old enough, then they start getting in and alienating that parent. Right. You know, from the other one is another form of isolation and abuse is, again, right. control. You know, do what I say because I can turn this one against you in a heartbeat. Right. And that one is just, I mean, they're, every type of, of abuse is difficult to deal with. But I have watched people that have stayed in abusive relationships and then watched their teenage children right. be completely ripped out of their lives by yep. the abuser. And that's what I was going to say is the teenagers, I mean, that's when it just gets even more messy because it is. And most of the time, the manipulation is I'm going to let you do whatever you want to do when you come to my house or and I'm going to give you this and I'm going to buy you that. And, you know, it's just you're the fun parent. And then that manipulation comes in and, you know, the victim in the situation who's trying to actually be a good role model and parent their children is the one who is losing the children because, you know, they don't know any better. And that's what they've learned. Mm-hmm. So I think for one of my PSAs, it would be if you can start finding a way out and you're in these situations, the younger the children are, the better. You know, right. Try to get out earlier if you've really identified that this is this is going on in your household. A hundred percent. It's not going to get better if you stay longer. No. So I'm going to give you another chance for a PSA because I know that this one's really important and it's not something I think is as widespread. So talk a little bit about the significance of choking. So choking, strangulation, it is a different level. Anybody who has been choked, the lethality skyrockets. There's the research and what we're learning is in all these mass shootings they you know most of these people have had a history of domestic violence where they have strangled their partner so it escalates the lethality of a situation to a crazy i think it's 800 percent more likely to kill you if they have ever choked you and so it is an area where we are really focusing on we are working with law enforcement to really get everybody trained to identify those signs. And there's so many health risks that go involved. If we have somebody and the amount of people that come through our office who have been choked is extremely high. And so anybody who's experienced that, we very much encourage you to seek medical attention because a lot of times the sign there's not bruising there's no marks it's internal mm-hmm. and if especially if you've lost consciousness that escalates things even more so it is no joke when once your partner strangles you i mean it is imperative that you reach out and you get help because the likelihood again it's 800% more likely that they are going to kill you 
Yes, and I, I've read that statistic, and it just I see more and more that people are not really aware of that, right? Because it wasn't a, there was no weapon, right? And the thing is, is you don't really think about all the different ways that you can be strangled. Mm-hmm. So, any kind of I'm going back and forth with that language because the victims that we're serving use the language choked, mm-hmm. but really choking is what you do on food, mm-hmm. you know, or. And so we want to try to get that education out there as well. But there's different forms if it's a foreign object. A lot of times when we're talking, like if they're using a belt or, you know, a shirt or whatever it is, whatever is restricting your airway is strangulation. So we really, it's really mind boggling when you think about it, because we talk to so many people that come through our office and you're having the conversation. We're getting information about the recent incidents that have occurred. And they're like, well, he kind of put me in a chokehold, but it's, we have to now say, okay, show us Mm -hmm. because we have to determine if they were strangled and if their airway was restricted. But the realization that it is such a severe that escalates that lethality, the lethality of your situation so high that it is imperative that you just reach out for help, whether it's just a call and get some information and then go from there. Baby steps sometimes is what it takes to know that you're supported, but that, you know, unfortunately the reality is that this happens to so many people. Now, there's not much I think that you could probably say to this, but if someone is calling the police, if they've called the police and they're making a report, can you speak to the importance of just the, spe- the specifics that need to be reported, what they need to be prepared to tell law enforcement when they come? Because I find that oftentimes so much important information is left out and right. the person who's come to help them isn't given what they need to help them. Right. So law enforcement, CMPD, you know, we have a good relationship with them. They do have a domestic violence unit. And so I think that that's one big important thing to share is that also if you're, if there's a call out and it's a domestic violence call, that's going to the domestic violence unit where they are trained experts to connect with them. They have a victim advocate that would reach out to them and speak to them and really just connect them to Safe Alliance and the other services. But if you're calling law enforcement and they're coming out, I think the big thing to remember is, I mean, a domestic violence call is the most dangerous call for an officer to go to and respond to. So I think you just have to, and it's such a high emotional case. I mean, the crisis is so high that, you know, a lot of it is that their story isn't clear. They might not be able to tell you exactly what happened. But the thing is, is that you want to get as much information to that officer as you can, because that is the time to really be honest and truthful and let them know what all is going on. We do train our officers on the LAP, the lethality assessment protocol um, that Jackie Campbell uses. And so we, any officer that's responding to a domestic violence call should be completing the lethality assessment. So it's an 11 question questionnaire and they should be separating the victim 
from the abuser or they should be separating the parties, I guess, because mm-hmm. at that point you don't really yeah. know. So while they're questioning and determining what's going on, if they deem, you know, that one of the callers or if the caller is a victim, they're doing that lethality assessment protocol. If they screen in on that protocol, they are immediately connected to our hotline and speaking or have the option to speak to an, a trained respondent on that hotline to get them connected to services and offer, let them know everything that we do and really hope that they reach back out or even come back in. So I would just say, to be as honest and upfront and give as much detail as you can, even though it's one of the most challenging things to do in that moment, is to just try to share everything that you can to move forward with the process. And again, I go to this because of the crime aspect. So you've talked about the sexual assault right. almost as a separate arm because it can be a separate arm, but right. sexual assault between domestic partners is also a crime right your relationship or your marriage is not a free pass exactly. for forced sexual acts so when you've got these two divisions how what kind of intersection do they have at safe alliance for people sort of understanding which arm is going to be doing the services i guess right so it really if you're coming in and it's domestic violence so one in ten women have experienced rape by an intimate partner which is a huge number. And so, like you said, I mean, no means no, whether you are married or not. So I think if you're coming in and the primary victimization is domestic violence, you will come to victim assistance. If your primary victimization is sexual assault, you would go into the Sexual Trauma Resource Center. But from there, we really work together as a team to navigate and make sure that we are meeting the needs of what you need. Now, this is so much work that you guys do. And obviously, being in the legal field, we're aware of what you do and and some of the various fundraisers. But if somebody is listening to this and they're not listening as as someone who is a victim of, of this conduct, but they're listening because somebody they love is a victim of this conduct or they would just want to to do something to help. What are some of the best ways that people can help you all do your job? What sort of resources or volunteer work can people turn to if they want to help Safe Alliance do this work? So I would definitely encourage anyone to go to our website. So it's safealliance.org and we have a donation page on there. And so it we have we accept monetary donations. We love our volunteers. I mean we could not do our work without our volunteers. So we do have several volunteer trainings a year to give everybody the opportunity to come in and then they go through an initial about eight hour training and then they determine which area of focus that they want to really focus on. So whether it's court accompaniment piece or volunteering at the shelter, or if it's just coming for an afternoon to serve food to the clients at the shelter. There's so many different ways that you can help and donate specific goods that are needed for the shelter or for victim assistance or the Sexual Trauma Resource Center that we really just, we need the support to be able to do what we do because it is 
so overwhelming and unfortunate to the volume of victims that we're seeing come through. And so any way that you can, but again, I would just visit our website at www.safealliance.org and go to that donation page and volunteer page. And you have contacts for our agency to reach out to, to determine what suits you the best. And since I think everybody is possibly still clearing out things that don't bring them joy this time of year, can you take specific items? Are Is there like cell phones or baby items? Um, when you go to that page, could you find out if there was actually a place to collect, if there was good, clean, used things that people no longer need that Right. So there should be a needs list. And then if there is not a specific needs list for each department, there is a contact for each department where if you reach out to them, they can provide you with that. We do. We are not currently taking used clothes, but there are very many items that we can. Laundry detergent. We had a ton of that donated, which helps more than you know Mm -hmm. for the shelter. And so anything like that. But yes, like formula, diapers, snacks, anything. Yeah, but you can find the list there or reach out to us directly. Since you have your new number, would you like to tell everybody what the new number is? So our Greater Hope line of Charlotte number is 980-771-HOPE, which is 4673. So 980-771-4673. Well, Jamie, we thank you for coming and sharing this information for everybody and for doing the job you do. Um, I know it's taxing, but so very valuable for our community and everything Safe Alliance does is so wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. So there you have it. Another neighborhood of Splitsville explored. There's still so much to learn here. So I hope you'll tune in to the next episode. While Splitsville is not a fun place to be, thankfully, it is full of helpful people valuable resources, and sound advice if you know where to look. See you next time. The insights and views presented in Welcome to Splitsville are for general information purposes only and should not be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. Nor does tuning into this podcast constitute an attorney-client relationship of any kind. If you're ready for compassionate and reliable legal guidance on your journey, contact Lee Sellers and her team at www.touchstonefamilylaw.com.